Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we, we see from our, our original, our first reading today, that we live in a fallen and sinful world. And, and really for us, there's no avoiding that reality. We can't just say everything's okay, everything's good. No matter how much we would like to deny the fact, sin has infected everything. Nothing is as good as it could be or should be because well, sin taints every little aspect of creation. The reason is that we are sinners who live among other sinners in a world that has now borne the curse of sin. We come from sinners and we pass our sinful nature down from one generation to the next and we have to conclude that if something is messed up in the world or something's messed up in our lives, we at least are partly to blame. Because we see the root of all of this as we, we read Genesis 3 this morning. Here we have the account of Adam's fall into sin and the curse that that brings upon creation. As we have the curse pronounced both on the serpent, the woman, and Adam, and then subsequently upon the entire earth. So that from that moment on, everything good that had been created is now warped and, and a little tainted by things that are not good. This is the curse of sin that we hear God pronounce in our Old Testament lesson. Because the events of Genesis 3, they follow a good creation. As God made everything perfectly, he, he spoke all things into existence out of nothing. Everything from the vast and immeasurable cosmos to the infinitesimally small details of an atom all flowed from God's perfect and holy imagination. And it was not until God formed man from the dust and woman from man's rib, though, that God said that his creation was very good. Of course, when he, we made Adam and Eve... It was very good, but when he made vegetation, he said good. When he made the sea creatures and the birds of the air, he said good. When he made the, the animals of the earth, he said good. But Adam and Eve, it's very good. And the creation was made for that purpose. It was made for the world to be populated with human beings who were cast and made in his image. The creation was made to be filled with humanity as they would be like Christ, sharing in his holiness, partaking in his wisdom, and living in perfect union with him and with each other. They were to rule over this perfect creation as God would rule over them. And as they ruled, they'd live in unity as man and wife. They would live in consideration and care for each other and all the people that would flow from them. God created them to live together, not as two, but as one. As God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden, where man would dwell with his wife as one flesh, and in that union, there would be a fruitful multiplication that would fill the earth with others who would share in God's image. It was meant to be beautiful and perfect. And think of that. Just think of that for a moment. Man and woman living together in perfect harmony, having sinless children, living in a world that never lacked what was needed, never failed to supply for the needs of life, as nothing would break, no one would fail, and ultimately, no one would die. It almost seems hard to imagine such a perfect and beautiful life. 
in a perfect and beautiful world filled with perfect and beautiful people. As Adam and Eve would never share a crossword with each other and they would live in simple, perfect agreement while their children would be perfectly obedient and honorable and loving towards them and each other. How wonderful it must be. Of course, we know that's not the reality we live in. It was what things are meant to be, but it's not the way things are. So you see, everything breaks, everything fails, there's scarcity, there's loss. Creation does not always do what we need it to do. We experience droughts. We experience famine. We experience unseasonable weather. But also, man and woman did not live in perfect harmony with each other as they were created to. But we see husband and wife fight and have bitterness and disagreement and sin. And married life isn't natural and easy for us anymore, where we just slip in with each other and live with each other perfectly in harmony and unity. Man and woman argue. They drift away from each other towards separate interests and separate desires. There's disharmony in the rest of the home, too, as children are hard to raise. You know, you have sinful parents raising sinful kids, and there's conflict and difficulty. They're not always naturally obedient and loving, those little ones. They're, they're rebellious. They need to be watched. They need to be disciplined. They need to be taught right from wrong. And no matter how much a parent works to demonstrate love and respect to their children, children will still disobey and disrespect them. Because of all of this, the home is often viewed by the world as this, this unnecessary, disdainful, terrible reality as marriage is despised and children are avoided and even killed for their difficulty. As people seek to avoid life together so that they can pursue their own selfish interests, they cast family and the rest of God's good creation aside so that they can feed and care for their new God themselves. And this all flows from that first utterance of the devil, that first lie, because the devil hates God's word. The devil hates God's world. And so he hissed into Eve's ear saying, did God really say? And all of a sudden, the goodness, the love, and the mercy of God were brought into doubt. It was made questionable. As Eve was caused to doubt God's goodness in prohibiting them from eating that tree, from that tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden. The devil showed her that the fruit was desirable to make a person wise. It was appealing to her appetite. Why would God grant, want me to deprive me of wisdom and pleasure like this? And so what did she do? And she heard the lie of the devil, even though it stood in in direct contradiction of the word of God. She took it and she ate it, and Adam, who was with her, took it and ate it. And everything in creation from that moment on has been a spiral of sin and difficulty. The Bible teaches us this. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and the hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and the pains of childbirth and the throes of labor. This is the world we live in. We do not live in the perfection that God has devised for us, but we live in a warped and broken world that is painful. As male and female do not live in true unity and distinction with each other, now the two sexes live in opposition rather than in complement. The creation does not freely provide the fruits of the earth, but we must toil in it by the sweat of our brow. And the birth of children does not come with pure and simple joy, but with great pain to the mother. And ultimately, the most unnatural thing happens to us. We die. Man was not made for death, yet death is inevitable. And here we see that all was made to be good and perfect in this life, but it's been stripped away. Marriage is good and wonderful, and we break it. Children are a blessing from the Lord. We despise them. Work was made for our enjoyment, but we have to groan over it. Others were made to be loved by us, but we always find ways to hate each other. And the devil laughs as he goes about providing new temptations and new sins to break more of God's good gifts, and he delights in the misery that it provides for us in this life. As we see how weak we are when it comes to sin, as we daily fall, and we can't keep all of the blame on Adam and Eve, even as they were the first sinners, we have grown in the art. As Adam and Eve at least knew enough to fear God after they sinned, they, they, they hid themselves in the garden. But often we, we like to take pride in our sin. As we laugh at the notion of God's anger and we choose not to even believe in him, even the most pious Christians sometimes prove to be functional unbelievers when it comes to their own sinful pride, as they will confess any sin that isn't their own. It says in Romans about this pride that exists within us, for although man knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we choose to, to not acknowledge our Creator as our good and loving Lord. That's really the root of all sin. All temptation flows from this often insistent and persistent ignorance. And that's why our Creator has to act. Because we, we found ourselves in this, this spiral of weakness as we often are so curved in on ourselves that we can't actually look up and see the work of God for us. Our Creator has to come to us to pry us out from ourselves and to save us from our own sinful nature. And that's why Jesus enters into the creation. Our dark hearts need to be redeemed. And that's why Jesus comes to be our Redeemer. He comes to do what Adam failed to do. He comes to do what I daily failed to do. As Satan wanted to deny the Father and his goodness, and he wants us to follow him in denying the goodness of our God and Father, Satan had already cast the whole of God's creations into darkness from his first work with Adam, and he continually wanted to work to destroy and warp things by tempting our darkened hearts to fall deeper into our rebellion. God, in his love for us, was not going to sit back 
and watch his beloved children destroy themselves. No, he enters the creation. As the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in and all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. What an image. The immortal creator of the universe, the all-powerful and almighty God, he enters the creation to redeem poor, rebellious sinners. So here we have, really, the second Adam. The one who comes to do what Adam failed to do. And we have God taking on this flesh. And with that comes the potential for human weakness. As the devil sees this as an opportunity to seize God and all of his goodness. Because Jesus now, bearing human flesh, can be tempted just like Adam and Eve were tempted. As the Bible says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet was out sin. The evil one cannot stand something in creation that is without sin. And so he goes to work trying to find a way to corrupt the one who could ruin all of his terrible efforts. He finds Jesus at a time of physical weakness, and he attacks. After Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, he immediately is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. And at the end of that time, of course, after 40 days and no food, he's hungry. That's, once again, the weakness of the flesh. It's hunger. And so this is when the devil chooses to pounce as he seeks Jesus to exploit this physical state of weakness. And he says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And, and here, here's the devil making use of his favorite idol, the belly. This is part of what tempted Adam and Eve. What was the forbidden fruit desirable for? For food. It would taste good. The allure of that physical comfort, that gives food its power over us, doesn't it? It can make a person an enemy of the gospel very quickly. Just one empty belly and one temptation. St. Paul describes those who oppose the preaching of Christ. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ because their end is destruction and their God is their belly and they glory in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. So quickly, that little bit of relief, that little bit of pleasure, all it can drive us to do things contrary to the will of God. And so the desire for food when hungry can drive a person to sin. And so here the devil is tempting Jesus to deny the Father's love and good provision for him. But the faithful trust in God to care for them. And while we live in our vocations, working to make a living, we ultimately trust that the needs of our body come from the open hands of God. He loves us. He cares for us. He's the one who provides bread for the eater. And so Jesus commands, Jesus commanding these stones to become bread, that would be a misuse of Jesus' calling as the Christ. 
He was called, A, to trust in his Father perfectly, but his calling was also to use his divine power out of love for others, for other people. And so we see Jesus make bread. He does it in the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, but he never makes it for himself. But for the multitudes he's called to care for. Jesus came to earth to deny himself and to save sinners. And so Jesus commends the care of his body and his life to his Father. The Father would care for him. But the devil wanted that faith and trust in the Father to be shattered and violated in the same way that it often is within us. And then there would be no redeemed and no redeemer in God's fallen creation. And so Jesus does not immediately succumb to that growling belly, though. The Father is God, and he trusts in his Father, and his belly can wait, and he says, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so then the devil makes another attempt. He takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And it's kind of like the devil is saying, Oh, you trust in your Father. I see that. You didn't make the bread. You trust in him to provide. Well, prove it. Show how much you trust in him. Jump. He will have to send his angels to catch you, He'll not let his Holy One see corruption. And by the way, look at all those people down there in the temple courtyards. What do you think they'll do when they see you descend from the sky, carried by angels into the temple courtyard? Oh, how glorious it'll be for you. Once again, Jesus isn't sent for this purpose. Jesus says in John, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. It was not the Father's plan for Jesus to jump from the temple and descend into the courtyard. It was the Father's will for the Son to die for the sins of the world. Jesus says in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might have life through him. And so Jesus responds to the devil again. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And how much we could learn from this. As we often are tempted to test the Father's goodwill toward us, the devil tempts us to sin by giving us the excuse, hey, go ahead and do it. God will forgive you tomorrow. He promised. Why is it a big deal? Sin today, repent tomorrow. You know that your God will be merciful. Enjoy yourself now. Tomorrow you can crawl back in misery to your God, receive some mercy, and he'll forgive you. That's what he promises. So many Christians, we buy into this temptation. And eventually we treat the grace of God with so much contempt that we end up rejecting it altogether and make a shipwreck of our faith by the destruction of our conscience. As Paul tells young Pastor Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the word previously given to you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have rejected, or sorry, some have made shipwreck of their faith. See, people violate their Christian conscience in the seek of, seeking of pleasure or fun or whatever. And then eventually that conscience becomes hardened. 
But Jesus will not do this. He has a perfect faith. The devil wants to pervert the word of God to make us hate God as he's the one who's holding me back from what I really want in this life. But once again, Jesus pulls everything back to the word and says, no, I will not put my father to the test. God is faithful. I don't need to test it. And so the devil pulls his final gambit. He takes Jesus up to a high mountain and shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, all these I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. And here, the devil shows all of his cards. He has no love for God. He has no love for his word or the well-being of our bodies and in this life. He just wants to be worshipped. The devil wants to be God. And what better way to be God than to have God in the flesh worship at his feet? But Jesus sees right through that. He does not come to be an earthly Lord with an earthly dominion. He comes to be a Savior who makes for himself a holy people, set aside and redeemed by him. And he does this by denying himself for our good. His kingdom is inaugurated not when he takes command of all the earthly powers, but at his death and his resurrection. And it's born out of perfect love and faithfulness to his Father. Jesus will not deny him. And so Jesus commands the devil to go away. Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. What a champion. What a warrior for us. As Jesus stands up to fight the battle that we lose. Adam and Eve fell quickly to the devil's lies, and while some days we stand firm, some days we don't. As every day we face a new attack, a new temptation, and in some way or another we fail to keep and uphold the will of God, Jesus does not fail. He does not fall for the devil's traps, he doesn't succumb to the devil's lies, and he is perfectly faithful. He does not fail like we do when we're tempted. He lives in perfect love and in perfect obedience to his father. Adam should have driven that serpent from the garden. He should have crushed that serpent's head right then and there, silencing his lying mouth, but he didn't. And often we don't either. But Jesus is the one born to do just that. As we read in Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus comes into the world to do what Adam did not do, and that is to stomp the serpent. And here Jesus begins the crushing of Satan's head by exposing his lying and forked tongue and standing firm when the devil tempts. Jesus stands firm against the temptation of the evil one, and then he brings that final crushing blow to the devil when he forgives the sins of the world. That work of stomping the serpent continues to the cross. And that's where the devil is defeated because he's robbed as his only weapon against you. The sins of this world are taken to the cross. They are heaped upon Jesus and they die with him. And this is our ultimate tool against the devil. As the sword, this is the sword and shield that we're given to stand firm against him. Christ has died for me. I am baptized in the Christ. Christ forgives my sins. Satan wants to heap my sins upon me in this life. Jesus takes those sins 
and dies for them so that they cling to me no longer. Jesus forgives sinners. And that word of the forgiveness of Christ is what sends the devil fleeing. And that means that the sinful flesh that we inherited from our father, Adam, is being put to an end. We're no longer purely corrupted and evil beings. We are holy children of God. And that means that we have a calling to strive against the power of the evil one. It says in the book of James, Submit yourself self therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And how do you resist the devil? By living in faith by Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. And when we live in the gospel, we live under the care of Christ. We live under the power and protection of our champion. As we enter into marriage, as we raise our children, as we interact with our neighbors, as we worship, pray, eat, drink, and work in the gospel, we gather as a body of Christ to receive the gospel. As sinners repent and receive pardon from their sins, the devil flees because his power is stripped away from him. We're freed from his malignant rule over us because we are made citizens of Jesus' heavenly kingdom. And so we live in full knowledge of sin and evil in this world. We live in the full knowledge of sin and evil that exists in our own hearts. And we know where this comes from. But we also know the remedy for it. Christ daily forgives sinners so that we're free to pursue righteousness in our lives. We're free to pursue it because Jesus freely gives it to you. So if you have sin in your marriage, if you have sin in your home life, if you have sin in your work, if you have sin in your interactions with others in the world, and as your worship of the holy God might be slightly tainted because of your own sin, repent. Apply the gospel to these things. Know that Christ lives in you. Know that Christ has cleansed you and washed you and made you his own. And then strive again tomorrow and the next day. And though it may be difficult, and though you will fall short, the devil does not win in the end. Jesus does. He's already crushed the serpent's head. We are fighting against a toothless foe who has no power over you. And he will bring all work to completion on the last day. So hold fast to faith in Jesus. Trust in him, and he does fight for you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we know that we are daily assaulted with every temptation to sin. But we pray to your Lord, help us by the gift of your gospel to live in faithful and true repentance. Help us to strive against the power of the evil one. And help us to find our ultimate rest and comfort in Jesus Christ alone as we live under him and his kingdom and in the victory that he has attained for us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith and life everlasting. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We rise.